0: Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Assalamu alaikum everybody and welcome back for another class on Sirah. So we'll just have a quick recap on what we covered last time in session fifteen. We were talking about the aftermath of the revelation to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu wa sallam and the um, when he started to call his nearest and closest family members to Islam. So we spoke about how Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her, his wife, was the first convert to the truth, to the truth of Islam. And then in quick succession after that, there were a few. There was Ali, may Allah be pleased with him, the young cousin of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, who was being brought up in his household as a way of easing the financial burden on his father, Abu Talib. And then we also spoke about Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, who was the closest friend to the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, and had been so for the majority of his life. And now that the Prophet Muhammad him, is 40 and he receives the revelation, he tells his closest friend, and we hear how Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, absolutely immediately, took shahada with the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He declared his, his Islam and his belief in Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and his belief in the Prophethood of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then we looked at how Abu Bakr Radil himself then went on to call some of his very close circle of friends to Islam. We also spoke about one man who came from Yemen. So he'd come from quite far, and he had heard some rumors about some new religion that was being um, spoken about, not the idol worship that he associated with those in Mecca. Um, He himself had never really accepted or believed in idol worship. So when he heard that there was some, some new truth that was being spoken of, he sought out the prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And once he'd spoken to him, he declared his, his Islam, uh, he took Shahada, and he wanted to then follow the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. But um, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, at that time, he was giving his da'wah, he was calling people to Islam privately. It wasn't a secret, we, sp- we spoke about this last time, it wasn't a secret because people had heard rumors about it. So it wasn't sort of completely behind closed doors when no one else in the society had heard anything about it. People had heard some things about it, but the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, wasn't going open, if you like. And that's where we left off last time. So let's resume from that point. So this is that first three years where the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, has called those closest to him as a form of private invitation to the truth of Islam. He's not gone open, he's not spoken to the whole of his city yet. And there are some wisdoms of that initial stage of dawah that we can think about and take benefit from. So in those first three years, the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings be upon him, because he didn't make any sort of public proclamation, he was able to avoid all of the hassle and all of the stress that would go with that kind of pressure that he would then get from his people, the Quraysh. And because it was a private kind of da'wah, it was a private calling to, to those he knew very, very well and felt would be receptive to the message of Islam, that it didn't cause any public problem. So because it didn't cause any problem publicly, the Quraysh the the government if you like of that time let him be so this allowed him the prophet muhammad that luxury of spreading islam to all those that he felt would be interested so islam spread in mecca but at that time the Quraysh didn't do anything about it because it was spreading sort of privately and not openly and another benefit of this stage was that the prophet muhammad was able to concentrate on teaching the basic message of Islam, you know, the fundamentals, if you like, the pillars of faith. And he didn't have to worry about any of the torture and persecution because there wasn't any direct confrontation between him, uh, the Muslims, the, the the ones who had converted, and the wider society. Another blessing and wisdom of this stage is that the early Muslim converts managed to Form very solid bonds of brotherhood. If you can imagine, there was only a very small handful of them and, you know, they would know who each other were by name, by association, by face. They would know each other very, very well. So the fact that there were so few of them, it meant that they were very close with each other and they had that strong bond of brotherhood. The other thing is, if you Look at the names. If you read the names and you and you get to know the names of those early converts, you can see that each of them were absolute giants in their own right. I mean, the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. We know so many of the names. But if you look at those who were at the very beginning of this spreading of Islam, the very beginning of the message, they were such amazing people you could say they were famous you know really they're famous amongst the seerah and their names will keep on cropping up in all of the different situations that the prophet muhammad peace and blessings be upon him finds himself in his life as a prophet because they really were his stalwart they were the absolute core to to his support and this shows that in certain situations and in certain times and places there is a permissibility for us as well to keep that to keep that spread of islam as a private thing so we don't go you know you, you don't have a billboard about it you don't go you know and call out in the middle of in the middle of a town square about it you know in some countries where sometimes it isn't allowed to openly proclaim your religion to openly preach islam so perhaps in that case You can follow that same strategy that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, followed in those first three years, where he only spoke of Islam to those who were very close to him. When you look at the early converts to Islam, you find that the majority of them, not all of them, but the majority of them were from what we would say to be these days, although we don't really talk about class, but in those in that society, they were of a lower class there were some from that higher upper echelon of society, like Abu Bakr like Uthman that we spoke of last time. But most of them, so for example, somebody like Bilal, may Allah be pleased with him, who was a slave. Ibn Mas'ud, may Allah be pleased with him, who although wasn't a slave, he was from the servant class. All of that kind of group were considered to be from, you know, just the lower classes of people in that society. And throughout history, It's interesting, you will always find that the meek people, the humble people from society, how society views them, they are the ones who accept the truth before those who are rich, who consider themselves to have status, who consider themselves to be from the upper class in society because they feel powerful. And power is a temptation and can sometimes form a barrier to those accepting the truth which is why if you look at it even in our society today when somebody who we who we deem to be famous who we deem to be like a real mover and shaker in society or somebody who's a name like a household name when they become muslim then it has a massive impact so for example muhammad ali may they be pleased with him and and you know grant him jannah when he became muslim it was a massive boost to islam because of his persona his public persona that you know so like pretty much the whole the world that had heard of him, so when you do have somebody coming from that kind of background, you know somebody famous coming to Islam, then it seems a big deal because it's not as common, and ultimately, we will see as we go on with our with our study of the Seerah, that when um people of the higher levels of society, you know, more and more and more of them were accepting Islam, then it became a real problem for, like I say, like, kind of like the government at the time, you know, the, the elders of the Qurayshi community. And just to be clear, in case anybody has heard this and thinks I'm saying that, uh, you know, Islamically, we accept the form of talking about people with, at, of a certain class. For a Muslim, there is no such thing as class, but we know that this is how societies do think. So after these first three years where the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was calling those close to him to Islam in this private da'wah, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to the Prophet Muhammad to proclaim the message Publicly, and this came down in a series of verses, and perhaps the most important of those in sort of shu'ara, in ayah number 214, where Allah subhanahu wa taala commands the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu to warn your nearest, in other words, your closest relatives. So it was from this that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu understood that Allah was commanding him to stand and publicly speak. Of Islam so it was no longer sort of this individual one-to-one explaining Islam to somebody them taking shahada so the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings be upon him carried out this command in two stages firstly he called his immediate tribe so the Banu Hashim. he called his immediate uncles and his aunts to Islam and he did this by inviting them to dinner at his house, which is beautiful. So, you know, it's just such a, a normal thing to do, isn't it? When you want to speak to somebody, you invite them over, you make something to eat, you give them hospitality, and then you say what you want to say. So he invited over 40 of his family, and he had told his young cousin, Ali, I may be pleased with him, to prepare like a, a broth, you know, like a kind of a stew, if you like, with a leg of lamb. And to be honest, it's, it wasn't really enough for 40 people. If you make, if you make a pot of stew with, or casserole with one leg of lamb, you're not going to be able to feed 40 people. But what happened was that the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu he blessed the food before eating it. So this is one of the first miracles that Allah gave him. Uh, and when he blessed the food, each of them, each of the 40 adults ate to their fill, literally as if that a whole casserole dish was just for them so he had you know he gave them the hospitality they ate the food amongst the uncles that he called was his uncle Abu Lahab who was actually even his next door neighbor and it was his uncle so it was his father's half-brother and Abu Lahab was scared that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was going to actually speak to the people about this message because he knew there was something like I said there there were already rumours going around in society that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi was speaking to people about something new and he did not want this to happen so he stood up before the end of the meeting so they just finished eating and he stood up and he said right that's it thank you very much I'm off and because he was a leader, and an elder, really, in that society, once he left, then everyone else sort of got up and left as well. So that didn't really go how the Prophet Muhammad was hoping. He was hoping then to stand up and call them to the truth of Islam. So a few days later, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, again, he invited them the same thing, prepared food for them, you know, let them all eat. But before they could leave, he spoke to them and he said to them, you know, I'm coming to you as a messenger from Allah. And he preached to them about Islam. He spoke to them about the truth of Islam. So although they had heard that he was speaking to people, you know, one to one about some new some new thing, they had actually never really They'd never heard from the Prophet Muhammad Aissalam himself. They'd never heard him speak about it, and when they did, the same uncle who I'm sure all of you have heard of Abu Lahab he said to he said to the Prophet Muhammad seem, "You know we have our ways." And, you know, we do things the way we want to do them. He's really annoyed. He's very angry that his his nephew has spoken up to to all the elders in their tribe like this. He says, who does he think he is? So the rest of the the uncles that were there, they they weren't, you know, as mean, if you like. They weren't as harsh. They didn't and they didn't really take the message seriously. They had their meal. It was very nice. You know, he wants to say something. They kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. And although the Prophet Muhammad Sallam then said to them, "You know, this is," you know, he spoke to them about Islam. He said, "Who, who will, who will join me in this truth, and who will support me in this?" None of them, none of the uncles, you know, wanted to know anything about it. And actually, we're told it was only Ali, may Allah be pleased with him, that young boy. He stood up. And he said, oh, Prophet, I will help you. And this is so beautiful that the conviction that he had and the bravery also that he had to stand up there in front of his father was there. Abu Talib was there. All his uncles were there. And he stands up and he says quite openly to the whole of his, you know, the elders in his tribe. I believe in what? Um, my cousin the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam is saying and i support him and i will always support him. and we see this throughout the life of ali radhiyallahu that he absolutely is one of those forefront people he's absolutely one of those strong supporting members of the ummah for the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam so that was the first way that the prophet muhammad started to spread the message more publicly. And then a few days or a few weeks later, he went absolutely public and he spoke to the whole of Mecca. And again, you've mostly really heard how he did this. It's absolutely beautiful. He stood on the Mount of As-Sakha. Now this is very close to the Kaaba. Um, it's, you know, sort of in front there of the Kaaba. And he calls all the people to listen to him and he's the way he calls them it shows that he has an announcement to make the way he calls out to them so on mount suffer he can be seen very clearly i mean at the time mount suffer was much taller than it is now because over time it's been eroded by all the millions and millions of you know people who've climbed up it but at the time it was a lot lot taller and so he stands there at the top and he starts calling out to all of the tribes, you know, oh tribe of Abd Manaf, oh tribe of Abd Adar. He's he's calling them all by name, and he calls all of these tribes of Quraysh. And at the time, I mean, now obviously Mecca is so much bigger, so much louder, you know. But at the time, Mecca was a small village, really. So this was a very effective way to call people a bit like how you used to have town criers back in the day and this was how news was given and you know in that in that society that's how they would call and and give a public pro- proclamation and so the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam first of all he stands up and he says if i were to tell you that i see an army on the other side of the mountain and they are about to come and attack you would you believe me so he is asking them their opinion of him you know would you believe me do you think i'm an honest person and one of the beautiful things about this is as we know the prophet muhammad wa sallam, is the best example for absolutely everything that we could ever want to do and here He's showing us the best way how to speak to people, how to give them da'wah. So what he's doing first, he doesn't start talking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that there's only one God and why they're worshipping the idols. He gives them a theoretical proposition. He is getting their attention first. He calls them all by name um, and they come because they know he's got something important to say. He stands up high on the mountain, so he's in a vantage point. And he gives them a a quite real, quite real situation that could happen. He's up high. He can see the all all around. And he says to them, you know, if I was going to tell you that there was an army on the other side that you can't see because you're down there and I'm up here. Would you believe me? In other words, would you start preparing for battle just because I am saying this to you? How much do you trust me? So he's he's asking their opinion of him so first of all he's prepping them really for what's going to come next he wants them to understand you know to really fully consciously be aware of what kind of person he is and they all say yes you know you are al-ameen uh you know we know that you are very honest you're a very trustworthy person you've never spoken a lie in your life to us so He's getting them to testify to his character, which is another, you know, publicly in front of each other, they are saying this. So it's another way of ensuring that he's prepped them for what he's about to say next. And also, you can see the standing that he had in that community. He was so well loved, he was so well respected, and he had such a good name for himself so many all of the community all testified that yes you're so truthful you're so honest and that's just such a massive lesson to all of us if you want somebody to believe in the truth you have to be a truthful person yourself muslims have to be truthful people they have to be honest upright people otherwise why will anyone want to listen to their words when their actions speak so loudly against them so now that the prophet muhammad peace and blessings be upon him has kind of prepped the situation he's given them this theoretical situation that if i saw um, an army attacking would you believe me would you start preparing for battle what do you think of me so they all testify to his truth then he says to them then no that I am a messenger sent by Allah, I am a warner sent by Allah, so that you may save yourselves from his punishment, worship him alone, leave idolatry, leave idol worship, and do good deeds, so that you may be saved on the day of judgment. And in that short little little kind of paragraph that I've just read out, Here, he is telling them the very basis of what they need to do. And the other thing is, he says to them, you know, I'm a warner sent by Allah so that you may save yourselves. In other words, you can help yourself. You can change. Don't think that, oh, well, I've been living like this for so many years and my great, 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 great grandfathers and ancestors have all lived like this. So we can't change. You can change. You're not beyond hope. He's he's empowering them. He's giving them that. That control of their own situation to say you can save yourselves from his punishment how do you do that worship him alone leave the idol worship that you're doing and do good deeds so that you are that you may be saved on the day of judgment so here the prophet Muhammad he gives that public proclamation for the first time and he calls he's called them all You know, by name, he calls all of his family by name each time saying, you know, you need to save yourself from the fire of hell and I cannot help you at all. In other words, change your lifestyle. Think about the hereafter. Don't go through this life on autopilot just doing what everybody else is doing. But with this, clearly, the Prophet Muhammad is now, you know, he's gone public, opening up a massive can of worms here because... This is the, the first excuse that they have, that the city the has to show their anger, their hatred, their animosity to the message. Because before that, he didn't go to them with Islam, and now he's called them all. So in that crowd is his uncle, Abu Lahab, the one we spoke of, who was at the dinner. And he was actually his worst enemy, his own uncle. And he stood up and he he literally, he threw some sand at the Prophet Muhammad wasallam as a sign of disrespect. A bit like how if, you know, you go to something, somebody's giving a speech and, and people are throwing like rotten tomatoes or whatever at them. So it's a sign of disrespect. And he says to him, Tabbalak, May you be cursed. I mean, even, I don't even like saying it. And he says to him, is this why? You called us here, you know, for this rubbish that you want to tell us. And that's the first sign of anger and hostility there that started towards the Prophet Muhammad and very sadly, it started by his own family member, his own uncle. And this is exactly as the elderly warqa Ibn Nawfal had told him three years ago, when he'd gone to him, his wife Khadija, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's wife, had taken him to her cousin Waraka Ibn Nawfal, who was a learned man. And he said to him, then your own people will reject you. And here we are, this is what it's starting. They're starting to reject him. So when uh, Abu Lahab had said this, this, these horrible words to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala revealed verses that we recite to this day. Which in English means cursed are the hands of Abu Lahab. This is Allah cursing him. And in that chapter, in that surah of the Quran, Allah is predicting, as only Allah knows everything, And everything from the past, the present, and the future. Allah is the one who created time. He's the one who created everything. And he is predicting that Abu Lahab would live and die as a disbeliever, even though he could have for the next, you know, however many years while he lived, for the next 13 years, he could have accepted Islam, but he didn't. So Abu Lahab, his uncle, was the first to openly oppose the message of the Prophet Muhammad say sallam and in public to do that in public it's even ruder than when he had spoken to him you know m- badly at the private dinner at the Prophet Muhammad house because this is Abu al-Hab's public image and he wants to you know carry on have everyone believe that he's you know a brave you know really kind of strong man and you know he's not going to put up with any rubbish but sadly this struggle was just the beginning, and it was inevitable because every prophet, sadly, that Allah Taala has sent has had to face the opposition of their own people, because basically most people don't want to change. They don't want to be told by anybody that, well, actually the way that you're living isn't a good way to live, and you should now change your ways you should stop all the bad that you're doing you should do all you know all the good things that you know Allah is pleased with N- people don't want to hear that it is a struggle and anyone who's converted to Islam knows it's a struggle to change anyone who has tried to improve their islam in any way improve themselves in any way for the sake of Allah knows it's a struggle and for some people they just don't want to go through that struggle they'd rather just stay the way they are and not be told that they need to change. So that's why every Prophet that was sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to call people to the truth, to, to change them, to bring them back to the good ways, that's why they faced um, the enmity from their own people. So now just as this message became public with the Prophet Muhammad calling people publicly like that to Islam, so too the opposition became public as well. But the Prophet Muhammad carried on preaching publicly. Once he'd done this, once he'd called everyone, you know, when he was standing on Mount Safa and he called everyone to to leave their ways and to follow uh, to follow the truth. Then he carried on with that public spread of Islam. And the way he would do this is he would go to the people who had come to Mecca, whether it be on business or to visit the Kaaba, people would come because of the Kaaba. He would stand in front of their caravans of goods and their people. And he would stand in front also of the pilgrims that had come for the season of Hajj. And he would ask them permission to speak to them. Subhanallah, so polite. He didn't go in. I mean, he knew he had the truth. He could go to them and say, you know, what you're doing is terrible. And I'm here to tell you how to really you know, live your life the right way. But he was so polite. He would ask them permission to speak to them. And we can say, see that this is actually the correct manner to speak to somebody in Islam. You don't start talking to them. You don't start barging in and saying, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. Rather, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would say, you know, do you have a few minutes so I can speak with you um, about worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Can I speak to you about the religion of Allah that Allah has sent me to, to, to tell people about? Absolutely. What an amazing man, subhanAllah. And then, when they would say, okay, yeah, okay, we've got a few minutes, you can speak to us. And when they would give him permission, he would then tell them that, you know, it's only Allah that's worthy of worship, that they shouldn't turn to anything else for worship. And such a polite way of doing this, such a beautiful way of calling somebody. But what was the response? Sadly, the majority of the time, people did not want to listen to his message. And like I said, the opposition really did start in Mecca. Remember Mecca was a tribal society. They prided themselves on their culture, their civilization. They were really proud of who they were and they rejected the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, not because the the what he was calling to them calling them to, sorry, didn't make sense, but because you know this is how things had been done uh, in their families, their forefathers They had worshipped idols and this is how life had been lived for so many years. They were not prepared to change. Their main excuse was that they would say, you know, how can you come and take us away from the religion of our forefathers? Who are you to preach this different message that, you know, our great forefathers never came to us with? It wasn't that what he was saying didn't make sense. And even it wasn't that they didn't believe that Allah created them, they did. They knew that there is one God and he created them, but it was their pride in their culture, their pride of who they were, their civilization, that actually just blocked them from, from making any changes. And they would say, you know, who are you to come and, and break up our culture? That was their main excuse against the teachings of Islam. So the first thing that they did is that they gathered together and they went to Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad He's also the leader of the Banu Hashim, which is the tribe that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, belongs to. So some of the, the elders of the Banu Hashim, they came to Abu Talib and they said, you know, you need to do something to make your nephew stop saying all these things. Make him stop preaching Islam. You know, he's your nephew and he's cursing our idols, which, by the way, the Prophet Muhammad never did. He never, it's a lie, he never cursed their idols. Allah Taala tells him in the Qur'an that, you know, never speak badly of of what they're worshipping because otherwise it will lead them to speak badly of Allah. So the Prophet Muhammad never actually said anything bad about the idols. He just said, you know, stop worshipping them so they came and they said to his uncle abu talib who although is his uncle we know really is actually actually a father figure to him because remember he was looked after by by his uncle abu talib from the age of eight and now he's a grown man he's he's 40 and all that time abu talib has loved him and cared for him and looked after him so well i mean when he was younger people would see how Abu Talib looked after the Prophet Muhammad and he gave him so much love, almost, almost, you could say, more than he gave to his own children. So they came to him and they said, you know, make him stop. But Abu Talib was able to deflect them and he said to them, you know, well, actually, he's an adult now, he's 40, and I'm not in charge of him and, you know, he can do what he wants. So the first attempt that they made to try and stop the prophet muhammad spreading the message of islam failed abu talib just wouldn't have any wouldn't have any of it then after a few weeks and months they came back to him because by now more and more people were converting so they can see that they have to do something they feel they have to do something to stop the prophet muhammad speaking about islam preaching the message of islam so they come back to the prophet uh, to sorry to abu talib And they say to him, we demand that you prevent your nephew from preaching. And why do they keep coming to Abu Talib? Because Abu Talib is the chief of the Banu Hashim. He is the leader of that tribe. And it's a tribal society. So when you go to the chief, the chief has the power to stop you. He's in charge of everybody in his tribe. So that's how it works. If the chief said to you, stop doing this, then you had to obey the chief. And he had to listen to the chieftain of the clan. So they go to Abu Talib and they say, we're not going to give you any choice because if you don't stop him, then just wait and see what we're going to do. So in other words, either stop him yourself or hand him over to us. And obviously then they were going to kill him. So, But they were threatening Abu Talib, saying, you know, if you don't do it, then we're going to do it. Now, this is actually a break in the way things were done in society you didn't you didn't threaten your chief and Abu Talib had never been spoken to by his people like this so when this happens then Abu Talib calls the prophet Muhammad to him to his house and he has a meeting with him and he says to him oh my nephew you know that i have nothing against you you know that i love you you know that i don't have any problem with you preaching but your people have, your people have come to me and they have demanded that you stop. And I can't oppose my people. In other words, he's kind of emotionally speaking to him saying, oh, please, you know, you're really putting me in a hard position. Have some mercy on me. Don't, don't, don't do this to me. I can't bear it. And this is the famous point where the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi stands up and he becomes very emotional. And he says to him, oh, my uncle by allah if you to if you were to give me the power over the sun and the moon if you were to give me the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left in other words if you were to offer me everything that the world had to offer and more i would never give up teaching this message so it's not that the prophet Muhammad in any way was hard-hearted i mean this This man, his uncle, Abu Talib, really his father in all senses. He loves him so much and he doesn't want to put him through all the heartache and the the difficulty that he can see is being brought upon him because of what he's doing. But he knows, he is absolutely 110% convinced he has that much faith. He knows he can't stop. He's been given a job by Allah. The creator of everything And he can't stop Just because His his father figure Abu Talib His uncle Is asking him to And in another version Of the same incident We're told that The Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu alaihi Said Oh my uncle Do you see the sun outside? And obviously If you go Ever go to Such a hot country Like Arabia If you ever go to Mecca You will see the sun Very clearly outside It's not like gray england which is usually covered with clouds anyway that's another point so if you he says to him do you see the sun outside and abu talib said well yes and the prophet muhammad says to him are you able to take a branch and light a fire from that sun and abu talib says well no that's not possible so the prophet muhammad sallallahu says in the same way it is not possible for me to stop preaching the message of Islam, and obviously Islam is light. knows I can't put myself into darkness. I can't turn my back on the truth. Now that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me the light of Islam, just like you can't light a fire directly from the sun, I cannot extinguish the light of Islam directly. So when Abu Talib sees how strong and how firm The Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, is on his path and the resolve that he has to carry on. He says to him, oh, my nephew, do as you please. From now on, I will never stop you again. And alhamdulillah, he lived up to his word. In other words, he's telling him, you know, whatever happens, I will be with you. I will be there supporting you. And as we go on with the seerah we'll see that's exactly what he did. He never left the the support of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. But sadly, as we miserably all know, despite this love and concern and care that Abu Talib had for his nephew for the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it's a sad fact that he didn't actually ever accept Islam. He remained an idol worshipper and he died an idol worshipper. And yet, he supported the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, as much as he could. And there is a lot of wisdom behind why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala arranged things in this way. And inshallah, we'll go into that next time. So for now, that's me signing off. I hope everybody will join me back again next session. Subhanakullahu wa bihamdika. أشهد La Ilaha Illa Anta, أنت أستغفرك وأتوب إليك Glory and praise be to you, O Allah. I bear witness that there is no one worthy of worship except you. I beg of you your forgiveness and repent to you. Amin.